happy Mother's Day. Something interesting that I heard mentioned this week was that the one thing that every human being that has ever lived since Adam and Eve has in common is a mother. Every human being that has ever lived after Adam and Eve has a mother. Mothers truly are a gift from God, and without one, none of us could or would exist. So it's good to celebrate our mothers. Uh, it's, a great, um, it's a great time to, to do that. I'm glad we set aside a day uh, of the year to, to do that. But make sure that that's not a one-time-a-year thing. That's, uh, that's something we should remember throughout the year as the mothers are all like, yes, amen. I just scored some brownie points. So if you are blessed to still have your mother with you in this life, make sure you take time today to show her how much you appreciate her. All right, well, this morning we're going to continue our study in 1 Peter. Thus far, we've looked at a summary of the character of God's people, the realities as God's people that we experience as having been reborn or being given new life, how we respond to that new life. And then last week, we looked at the call to live intentionally for the glory of God. This morning, we're going to continue on in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would encourage you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11, and we're going to read verses 11 through 17. So if you will, once you get there, everybody turn there. Once you're there, if you will, please stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by, doing, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter that Peter wrote under your inspiration, Lord, that we could not only see some of the issues that were uh, plaguing the church of his day, not only see his encouragement to them, but also by extension to see he and to hear his encouragement to us. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to not only to see and to understand your word here, but Lord, that you would that you would speak through me, that these would be your words and not mine, and that you would help us to receive them. And I pray that you would renew our minds, change us, mold us into your image, help us to become more like you, and to put these things into practice in our lives as we leave this place. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Now, most of you know my story, and you know that before I came here, I was a high school social studies teacher. And one of my favorite classes to teach was civics. Now, the definition of civics is the study of the rights and the duties of citizenship. In other words, as citizens of the U.S., we have certain rights and responsibilities both at home and abroad. Citizenship is kind of like membership. 
if you will, because we are members of the United States, we live a certain way. When we went, when we went or when we were in Mexico just a couple weeks ago, it was obvious to everyone that we were Americans. There was no doubt in anybody that we met, there was no doubt in their minds that we were Americans. We were different. We stood out. This class that I taught for years was to instruct up-and-coming adults on how to be good U.S. citizens. Not only on what their rights were, but what duties they had and what was expected of them. Everything from voting to paying taxes to military service, how the government worked, who their leaders and representatives were, what the laws were and what the laws are, etc., etc. Peter makes a point at the very beginning of this letter to point out that as God's people, we are exiles here and that our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Often we tend to separate the two. We try to balance our earthly lives with the things of God, but the reality is the two are intricately and inseparably woven together into a single fabric. The one defines the other. Being citizens of the kingdom of God has earthly ramifications. So I'm going to put my civics teacher hat on today, and we're going to learn some what I'm calling heavenly civics. All right, in other words, how are we to live in this world as citizens of the kingdom of God? How are we to live in this world as citizens of the kingdom of God? So we're going to look first here at verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So first of all here, he reminds them again for the second time in this letter that they are sojourners and exiles. Now, a sojourner is someone who is on a journey, someone who is traveling, a a pilgrim. And an exile is someone who's living in a land that is not his or her home. And this is how he describes the church. And it is as true of us today as it was for them then. This world that we live in is not our home if we are children of God. If we are in Christ, then we are citizens of His kingdom, tasked with living temporarily on this earth for the glory of God, as we looked at last week. And this description of the church sets the scene and the context for everything that follows. This fact is to be ever on their minds. That's why he keeps reminding them of this. Because when we live in light of our citizenship in God's kingdom, it fundamentally affects the way in which we conduct ourselves on this earth. The fact that this world is not our home does not free us to do whatever we want, nor does it allow us to live with our heads in the sand trying to ignore what's going on in this world. Rather, our citizenship in the kingdom of God regulates our actions and our lives here in this temporal kingdom. And here we see being a kingdom citizen in a sinful world, first and foremost, has personal ramifications. Being a kingdom citizen means God makes a claim on your personal conduct. This is how you are to relate to the sinful world that you live in. He says God's people are to abstain from the passions of the flesh that war against our souls. 
So as pilgrims living in a foreign land, we are not to adopt the sinful habits, the customs, the desires, the traditions, or the actions of the world around us. We are not to become like the world. What Satan promises will satisfy your desires. Ultimately, Peter says, wages war against your soul. It's a Trojan horse, if you will. Now, just to explain that real quick, legend has it. The ancient Greeks besieged the city of Troy. They could not penetrate the city's defenses. So they laid down their arms in surrender, and they built a large wooden statue of a horse and presented it as a gift to the city. The leaders of the city accepted it as their terms of surrender. They brought the horse inside the city walls, but unbeknownst to them, hidden inside the statue was a group of Greek soldiers who slipped out, opened the gates, and allowed the Greek army to rush into the city. That which had promised peace ultimately hid the gravest danger and brought the city to ruin. In the same way, the enemy of God promises life in the perverse distortion of our bodily desires for things such as food and drink and sex. And we see these same temptations today. Our culture turns to a drug or a bottle for a good time or for comfort or to ease anxiety. Satan promises happiness and satisfaction through overindulgence in or worship of food or through abstinence of food in order to hit a magic number on a scale or to look a certain way in the eyes of others. Our society says we must get on board with the sexual revolution and embrace and legitimize the LGBT movement and to normalize a variety of sexual experiences outside of the marriage covenant. The world says to pursue whatever makes you happy, to follow your heart, follow your passions, follow your desires. But Peter says, no. These things, though they promise the world, though they promise life and satisfaction, actually wage war against your soul because they are all examples at their core of of rebellion against God. God's people, he says, are to abstain from these things. God's people are to be different, set apart. Yes, we live in this world, but we cannot compromise to live like this world. Do not embrace the ways of the world because this is not our home. We are here as ambassadors or representatives of God's kingdom. Lest you think this is just Peter talking, ever wonder where Peter gets this stuff from? Like Sometimes we tend, we tend to read Peter in isolation from the rest of the Bible as if Peter's just making this up or he has this voice in his head that's telling him what to say or what to write. But remember, Peter walked with Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach and preach. And as he's writing this, he's probably recalling Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, which he attended personally, by the way. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, this is Jesus teaching here. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. See any similarities there? 
He's basically quoting what he heard Jesus say. This is as as direct a quote as you're going to get. These words from Jesus have been especially convicting for Kelly and I. Years ago, before we were even married, we, we pulled a catchphrase from this passage, a summary, if you will, and that's the phrase, be a city. When she went to work, I would text her, have a great day, be a city. When I went to class or into my classroom or onto the field for a game that I was coaching, she would call me or she would talk to me or she would text me, hey, have a great day, be a city. When we other in the mornings we would leave with the reminder bye love you be a city and this became our motto so much so that this year for our anniversary kelly's kelly's always wanted the tattoo and so she finally did it she finally got one if you haven't noticed guess what it says on her forearm be a city it's a constant reminder that this world is not our home we're not to hold on to the things of this world we do not owe our allegiance to this world Our hope is not in this world. We are not to pursue the things of this world. But we are to represent the kingdom of God to this world through the words we speak and the way that we live. Peter goes on to say that we are to be men and women of honor and integrity, living honorable lives among the Gentiles or among the world. Why? So that when they speak evil of us, When they speak evil of us, notice that word when there, when persecution comes, they will see your good works and give glory to God. goes back again. This is building off of what we talked about last week, about living intentionally for the glory of God. Persecution will come. People will speak evil against you. Look back again at Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Look at verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, here's the key phrase, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says persecution will come from this world, guaranteed. Satan doesn't like his evil to be exposed. The darkness does not like the light. The darkness flees from the light. Jesus himself said that when persecution and mocking come, you are blessed if it is false, if it is on my account. Peter says, let the persecution come, but make sure their claims against you have no merit. I'm reminded of the book of Daniel, since my Bible study group just went through this, and the men's group is going through it now. God told Jeremiah to write a letter to the people of Judah who had been carried off into exile. Carried off into Babylon. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 29. So I'm going to read a section of that uh, starting in verse 4. Jeremiah chapter 29 starting in verse 4. This is written to the people described in the book of Daniel. Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not let listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. 
I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. He tells these exiles the same thing. Live honorably in this land, but live as exiles. This is not where you're going to stay. You're going to come home. Among the recipients of this letter were men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think back to the story of Daniel. Why did Daniel's enemies go after his prayer life and twist it before the king as if it meant Daniel was somehow disloyal to the king? Because they had nothing else to attack him with. They had no other reason to attack him. Why did the people rat out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for not worshiping the idol? Remember, Nebuchadnezzar didn't notice it. It was people who came to him and said, hey, these guys are not, they're not bowing down to the idol. Why did they rat them out? Because they had nothing else to malign them with. They were God's representatives in Babylon through their conduct. They had a reputation as being men of honor and integrity who worked hard and who did well. These were high-ranking men had rose up in the ranks of the government in the nation in which they lived. Only their belief in God set them apart. And the same should be true of us today. However, when the divorce rate within the church resembles the rate outside the church, when the rate of young people hooking up is similar inside the church as outside the church, when professing believers live together before being united in marriage, when we tolerate and overlook, overlook sin in any capacity within the church, we discredit, tarnish, or harm our witness. The world rightly looks back at us and scoffs. Who are you to lecture me about sexuality or gender or abortion or justice or morality when you are no different? It's imperative that God's people pursue personal holiness because we are His ambassadors to the world, to the society and the culture and the people around which we live. Ask yourself this question, what do people know about God by looking at your life? What do people know about God by looking at your life? We are to do this all for the glory of God. Now for some, God will use our obedience to convict their hearts and lead them to obedience. For others, it won't be until they stand before God on judgment day that it dawns on them. But either way, no matter what happens to us today, in the end, justice will be done and God will be glorified through our lives here on this earth. Not only does being a kingdom citizen in a sinful world have ramifications for our personal lives, but second, being a kingdom citizen in a sinful world has social ramifications. How does being a citizen in the kingdom of God affect our relationship with 
society, with other authority structures in our lives. Look at what Peter says in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is a big one. This is a source of great controversy today, but it really shouldn't be. This is a point where I'm going to encourage you at this point to set aside your political views, to set aside your personal opinions, and come to God's Word with an open mind. Let's look at what the Bible says and allow that to shape our views, to shape our opinions. Oftentimes we do the opposite. We walk in with our preconceived notions and we try to make the Bible say what we have already decided must be true. And that does no good. That's not having your mind renewed. Peter says, As kingdom citizens living in this world as exiles, we are to be subject to every human institution. In case there was any doubt about what he meant or who he was talking about, he gives the emperor and his governors as example. Now, these were, this was a pagan government, pagan emperors, pagan governors that were not, these were not men of God. These were not, these were not Jews. These were people, outsiders, who were ruling the Jews, who were ruling the churches, who were ruling these regions. These were, this, was, this was the Roman Empire and its hierarchy. Now, here in the United States, we have the right to vote, and that is a blessed thing, something that we should not take for granted. We absolutely should be leveraging the voice that we've been given in our government. And we've been given this, we should use this to try to affect positive, biblical Moral change in our nation, that is a good thing. That is a worthwhile effort. But as exiles, we must recognize that our hope, our hope is ultimately not in a government leader or an administration or in any law. That's not where our ultimate hope lies. Because no matter who is in charge of the United States of America... They're human. The president at his greatest is still a man. The president at his worst is still a man. And in men is not found our ultimate hope. Now the word Peter uses that's translated as institution here is also the word that's used for creation. Implying that the emperor who was worshipped in Roman culture as a god was merely a created man like any other. And the government of Rome, though the most powerful force in the known world at that day, was merely a created institution. He uses that term to highlight the fact that these things, by nature, are inherently inferior to God. As citizens of God's kingdom, it is to Him that we owe ultimate allegiance. It is Him that we serve. It is He that commands us. Peter understands this well, as he has had his own run-ins with the law. If you look at Acts chapter 5, 
starting in verse 27. They've been arrested. We've gone through this, this passage. Pastor Mark has already preached through this passage. But they bring them in again. It says, and when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Peter was continuing to preach the gospel despite being ordered to keep silent because he recognized his loyalty was ultimately to God and not men. We also looked a few weeks ago at Peter's call to fear the Lord in chapter 1. Or consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Our allegiance, our loyalty is first and foremost to God and His Word. However, too often we stop there. Doesn't matter what the government says, they can't tell me what to do. Only God can tell me what to do. That's not what Peter says. Remember Peter's life. Remember what Peter's done, the stands that Peter has taken, and look at what Peter says. And this is a command here in verse 13. He says, be subject to every human institution. And the key phrase here is, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. In other words, because we are kingdom citizens, because we are his ambassadors to this lost world, because our allegiance is first to him, he instructs us, to submit to our human governing authorities. Who is it, after all, that put them in power? If we truly believe that God is sovereign, then we have to acknowledge that no one is in power unless it's part of God's plan. We submit to them because God told us to. To obey Christ is to obey the government. Now, we have to look at the entirety of Scripture here. We have already seen Peter disobey the government openly, outright, tell the high priest to his face, I must obey God rather than men. So how do we balance the two? How does this work? Here it is. By God's decree, we are to obey the government. Always. Unless obedience to the government means compromising our obedience to God. That's the one and only exception. Now we have a tendency in our culture, in our society, to look at this and ask, okay, well, under what circumstances can I or should I disobey the government? We, we, we phrase the question like this, when is civil disobedience okay? When is it allowable? At what point can I take a stand and say no? At what point is it okay for me to disobey but I would pose to you that that's the wrong question asked from the wrong heart attitude. We should be asking, how can I submit to the government in this circumstance? Our default should be to follow the law of the land, with the only exception being if the law of the land directly contradicts the law of God. And this is not unique to Peter. We see the same admonition coming from Paul in Romans 13, 1-2. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Here, Paul even warns, he goes a step further and even warns against judgment on those who disobey secular rulers. This is not a secondary issue. This is a legitimate sin issue. Now, there is a government mandate here that the role of government is to punish evil and praise good. Peter acknowledges that here. But our submission to the government, first of all, comes before that, and it's not conditional upon that. Our obedience to the government is not conditional upon them meeting their end. Our faithfulness is not tied to theirs. So I want to take a look this morning at some real-life personal examples to see where, where are our hearts, to test where is your heart on these issues, on this issue. Many of us would nod our heads in agreement. Yes, we obey uh, the, the government unless it tells us not, unless, unless it would tell us to compromise God's word. Many of us nod our heads in agreement until it hits close to home. So I've got a couple of case studies here. Number one, true story. I've been just the course of life over the last couple of years, I've had the opportunity to fly a lot lately. And most of you know, if you know me, there are a few things I despise more than being forced to wear a mask. Just me. Now, I could give you all the reasons why I'm skeptical as to the benefits, but just from a practical standpoint, it's hot and it's stuffy and it creates a facial condition that I have dubbed beard weird. And you bearded folks would understand exactly what this means. So for you ladies out there who have no idea what I'm talking about, imagine fixing your hair in the morning, and every time you got on a plane or went into a public building, you had to put on a shower cap. And you took it on and took it off and took it on and took it off. Imagine what that would do to your hairdo. Now you're starting to kind of get the picture here. Now, what are the rules, uh, at least until this past week, the rule was if you stepped on an airplane in the airport and the airplane, you had to wear a mask. The Bible does not prohibit mask wearing. So before a Christ follower steps on a plane, that mask should go on with a smile on your face, even though no one's going to see it. We have every right to lobby against it. I have every right to stand here and tell you that I don't like wearing it. I have every right to try to get the policy changed, which thankfully they did here recently. But when it was in effect, we put on our masks for the Lord's sake. Because that's what God told us to do. God made them in charge. This is the rule they gave. It does not contradict God's law. So whether I like it or not, I'm going to put a smile on my face. I'm going to put my mask on. And I'm going to submit to the government because God asked me to. For the Lord's sake. Let's get a little more personal. Case study number two. This is a fictional case study that I just made up. Now let me preface this one by reminding you that though we are in the heart of South Carolina... There is a very legitimate possibility that I am the most country person in this room, except for possibly Ricky. He and I are kindred spirits in that way. I love to hunt, and I am pro-Second Amendment. Those of you who know me know that. But what if the government revoked the Second Amendment? And the government said you had, gave you a deadline and said you had to surrender all of your firearms. What would you do? Second Amendment's not in the Bible. Have you ever seen those stickers or t-shirts that shows a picture of a gun and the phrase, come and take them? That's a sinful attitude to have. We have the right to petition our government. 
and to speak out against such policies and to support the Second Amendment. That's all well and good. But if such a law were passed, to obey God would be to submit to that law with a glad heart. If you say, I couldn't do that, or I won't do that, consider this. To not do so would be to disobey God and to make an idol out of a tool. Again, I say this as one who had, has had to wrestle with this myself, that heart attitude. Let's look at one more, one more case study, and that was our response to COVID here at Sardis. When COVID first hit, our deacons especially were faced with, with this situation. How do we handle this? And I want to say first and foremost that they handled it extremely well. All right, so for those of you who are wondering where this is going, this is, a very, this is a positive outcome. Our deacons did a phenomenal job of walking through these passages. How do we hold these two things in balance? There were a lot of unknowns at that point in time. And we did close our doors temporarily as we were asked to do. We closed down so that we could evaluate and figure out how can we reopen. That was always the goal. We, know, we knew we were commanded in the book of Hebrews to not forsake the meeting together. So we sat down, we looked at the data, we looked at the laws, and the executive orders from our governor, we even had the opportunity to sit in and participate on a conference call with the governor, referencing what churches could and couldn't do. And then we sat down as a group and came up with a plan to reopen the church while still following all the guidelines that the government had put in place. And we were only closed a couple weeks because of that. And this was important because we had to open and offer in-person services. So the question was, how can we fulfill that biblical mandate without violating the law? How can we, is there a way to do both? Is there a way to uphold Scripture and still be good citizens in the country that God has placed us and still be submissive to the government? And in this case, there was. That was a great example of how our hearts should approach areas where the law of the land and the law of God seem to butt heads or run into conflict with one another. Is there a way that I can maintain fidelity to the Bible and God's Word and still follow the law? If, however, a situation arises where that is not possible, when I could not follow the land, there was no way for me to do it without compromising the law of God without compromising what the Bible says is right and wrong, then I must stand as Peter did and say, at that point, I have to obey God rather than man. But it's after we've exhausted all other options. We came and said, I know God wants me to submit to the government. Is it possible for me to do that? And only if we come to the conclusion and say, no, it's not, can we stand as Peter did and say, I can't do that. I will not go there because my boss's boss is more important than my boss. And when we do that, when that day comes, we gladly accept the consequences that come with that stand. That's part of it. Again, we see that our obedience to earthly governing authorities is how we apply this personal holiness that we are cultivating or should be cultivating in our personal lives to our public lives in the society in which God has placed us. 
by being good American citizens, we do not give those opposed to God legitimate ammunition to use against us. If we are to be persecuted, let it be for righteousness' sake. Let it be because we follow Christ. Let it be because we love the Lord. If that's the worst the world can say about us, then bring it on. Embrace that reviling and mocking and let it serve as evidence and encouragement and assurance of the fruit of faith in your life. Paul echoes the same sentiment in Romans 12, 18. He says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He then encourages the church to live as people who are free and not use this freedom as a cover-up for evil. What does he mean here? He's referring to, again, we've been talking about this new life that we have in Christ. And he's referring to our freedom from sin. If we've repented of our sin, if we've placed our faith in Christ and have been given new life, then we are free from bondage to this world. We're now citizens of the kingdom of God. We do not submit, therefore, to the governing authorities on this earth because we are citizens of this earth. That's not why. We're freed from being servants of this world. We are servants of God. But as servants of God, what has God asked us to do? We are to use this freedom to willingly submit to the earthly governing authorities. Because we recognize that they are in authority because a sovereign God put them there and He has commanded us to be submissive to them. We are not to use our freedom from bondage to this world as an excuse to disregard the law of the land and do whatever we want. That's not why God purchased your freedom. That's not why He went on that cross. That is not obedience to God's Word. We are servants of God We are citizens of His kingdom. And to be a good citizen of God's kingdom, what is expected of us? What are we, how do we do that? He ends this section with a list of four commands. How do we do this? Honor everyone. Love the brothers. Your brother and sister in Christ. The church. One another. Fear God. And honor the emperor. These four things, these are the ramifications of having kingdom citizenship while living as an exile in a sinful world. We cannot forget that this world is not our home. This world is not to whom we owe ultimate allegiance. We submit to the laws of the United States. We're good. We, we should strive to be good American citizens insofar as we can as an example to those around us. So that when they look at us, the only thing they will have to bring against us is our faith. If we're going to be persecuted, let it be for righteousness' sake. So for the Lord's sake, we submit to the law of the land, regardless of what sacrifice that might mean for us. As Michelle and the praise team come to lead us in a time of worship, through song and music, I want you to reflect on a couple things just for a moment before we close in prayer. Number one, is your relationship to this world, think about your life, reflect for a minute, is your relationship to this world 
that of an exile waiting to go home. Do you view the things of this world as temporary? Are you living as an ambassador for the kingdom of God? Is that your purpose? Are you being intentional in your pursuit of holiness for the glory of God? Are you seeking to live an honorable life under the law of the land everywhere that you can so that the enemy has nothing but your faith to hold against you? If you know that you are not a child of God, that you don't have kingdom citizenship, or if you're unsure, I'll be down front. Pastor Mark will be at the back after the service. Please come talk to one of us. We would love to answer any questions you may have and to help you understand what it means to follow Jesus. If you are a child of God, if you do have kingdom citizenship, then I leave you with this charge today as we close. Be a city. Be a city. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. Lord, sometimes, especially in our society with the freedoms that we have, it can be so hard to submit ourselves to the government, especially when we look at our government and we see the corruption and we see the things that are, that are done that, that are just immoral. We see the immorality all around us and the government's approval of it. And Lord, while we can never compromise on your word, Lord, help us to, help us to always seek to be good citizens insofar as we can. I pray that, I w- that that would be our default position, not, not because we owe allegiance to this country, not because we owe ultimate allegiance to the president, but Lord, because we owe ultimate allegiance to you and you have placed us here and help us to live here as a good example, as a light to the world, as a salt of the earth here in the United States, in Swansea, South Carolina. Lord, I pray that our, our heart attitudes would not be one of, sub, of, of rebellion, but be one of submission to you. Again, recognizing that you are sovereign and you are God, and it is to you that we owe ultimate allegiance. And Lord, in doing so, in seeking to be a good citizen, in, in seeking to be good citizens of this world, help us not to compromise your word. Give us the boldness to stand where we need to stand and the wisdom to know where that point is. Lord, I thank you for the encouragement that we find here in this letter. Lord, that we know that persecution is coming. We know that mocking is coming. We know that following you is going to cost. But Lord, I pray that when it does, that it's for righteousness' sake. And Lord, I pray that that would serve as encouragement for us that the reason for our persecution is the fruit of faith in our our lives. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to pursue holiness, regardless of the personal cost, the personal consequences, the personal sacrifice, our fleshly desires. Lord, help us to walk away from those things and dare to live differently. Dare to stand out because we follow you. And Lord, as we enter into a time of worship this morning, I pray that as we, as we sing your praise, Lord, that we would not just be going through the motions, but that we would think about the words that we're saying and praise your name here in this place. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's name. Amen.